Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast and for taking the time to tune in. If you're plugging in for the first time, we're glad you're with us. During this episode, we learn from an internationally recognized expert who has developed high-impact engagement and incentive programs to drive lasting behavioral change. Karen Horgan is the CEO of ValHealth, the leading health-related behavioral economics consulting firm tackling the hardest problems in healthcare using proven behavioral economic science. While together, Karen discussed her team's founding journey of ValHealth and the significant impact her organization has brought to the healthcare industry's last mile to create measurable and sustainable change around patient and provider engagement. I'm excited to share Karen's story and the inspiring message she has for the healthcare industry that we can, in fact, bring positive change to the patients it serves through evidence-based and scientifically proven behavioral economic methodologies. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Karen, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Mike, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, I'm grateful to spend time with you today, Karen, in order for all of us to learn how you created a leading health-related behavioral economics consulting firm for our industry and to better understand the science of behavioral economics and its importance as the last mile to transform healthcare. But before we dive into all of your inspiring work, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our free online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas and interact with the global ecosystem. If you are listening to this episode via our online community, thank you for being with us. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, Karen. It's almost time for our community to learn how Val Health has become Health's Chief Engagement Officer. But first, let's take a moment to break the ice a bit so our community can get to know you. I'm going to randomly select one question here. All right. What's one thing you love to do outside of your work at Val Health? There's so much I love to do outside of work because well-being and balancing life and work is really important. Aside from being with family, I very much enjoy hiking. If I get the opportunity for vacation or on a weekend, just to go explore nature, have the physical challenge, be at peace and away from all the technology in the day-to-day, it's just such a fantastic experience to go hiking or mountain climbing. So have you done any hiking out in the big mountain ranges like where I live in Denver, you know, the Rocky Mountains? Have you done any hiking at high altitude? I have. I've actually climbed up to 16 or 18,000 feet down in Peru in the Cordillera Blanca in the northern part of Peru or Mont Blanc in France. Those would probably be a little bit higher than you have there in Denver. But I come out to Colorado or gone up to Banff and Jasper National Park and done some hiking and climbing there. It's just breathtaking and beautiful. It really is. You know, they say here in Colorado that you come for the skiing, but then you stay for the summers, right? Because the summers <laughs> in the mountains with the hikings, and you're right, we are definitely known for our 14ers or our 14,000 foot peaks. We have over 50 of them, but not that high in regards to getting up to 18 and 19,000 feet. I've heard hiking in Peru is just incredible. It's breathtaking. And you also get to have the culture and the experience with the locals. And that's wonderful too. 
I love it. Well, Peru is definitely on the list when we can get back to traveling internationally again, and hopefully that'll be sooner than later. Well, thank you for sharing that, Karen. We have a lot to cover today. I'm really excited to learn what this term behavioral economics means for all of us in this industry, especially with all the change happening, some in good ways and some in bad ways. But I know that there's a lot of great things happening in our industry. We've got to think it through and what it means in regards to the the behavioral change and how we go about it. But let's first start with taking it back. How did you get to the point where you became the CEO of ValHealth? I know you guys have been at it for a number of years, but give us that history lesson. Take us back into the journey of where you set yourself up to lead this movement that is now ValHealth. Some people have a master plan for their life. I somewhat stumbled upon ValHealth, to be honest. So I started my career in strategy consulting, which was all over different industries. And then migrated into technology because I wanted to be able to solve problems. And there I went to be early stage at many different companies. I was the second employee, the seventh employee. And just how do you use technology to solve problems? And then over the years, my interest in passion for health and wellness just started to grow. If you think about my example of I like to be outside hiking just to be with nature. And I connected with my co-founders who are academics at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, and they are the recognized thought leaders in generating the science behind behavioral economics and healthcare. They run an NIH-funded Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, and now they're very much involved in Penn Medicine's Nudge Unit. And our health came about to bring my passion for entrepreneurship and growth with their knowledge of the science of behavioral economics from an academic perspective. And Bell Health was created to bring all that together to make an impact on the real world. So not quite the master plan, but it's quite interesting because Bell Health is now going on 10 years. That's incredible. And so when you first entered into running Val Health and the ideas that you were bringing and the solutions you were bringing to the industry, did a lot of the incumbent and established stakeholders in the industry think, what are you talking about, Karen? What does this even mean? Can you share a bit about that? Because I'm sure there's some stories in there. You're bringing up a lot of angst from the first few years of Val Health, to be very honest. So when we started, we're like, well, behavioral economics, your listeners, if you're not familiar, behavioral economics is the science of understanding how humans behave irrationally. For example, we have a bias to the present, which is why we'll eat the chocolate cake when we see it. We have aversion to loss and regret, which is why we hold on to stocks or homes that we should sell. We overweight probabilities, which is why we spend $70 billion a year on lotteries. So there are all these innate, and some people would say wrong ways that we behave, but really they're just irrational. But now we understand more of that irrationality. And in the first few years of Val Health, and even today, people didn't even understand that there was this science to drive change. They're like, well, I'm just telling people this information, or I've been doing it this way. I don't understand the difference of how you're doing this. So for example, we know losses are twice as powerful as gains. And so if you take a message to a consumer or a patient or a provider, and you shift from a gain to a loss, you're going to get a bigger behavior change and an impact. And people are like, well, I'm saying the same thing you are. And they weren't open to understanding the nuances to how changing the order or changing the words could make change. And so much of the first few years was just going out on the speaking circuit and having people understand the science of behavioral economics. That was some of the challenges we faced in the early years. And were some of those challenges also butted up against kind of payment structure, right? Well, it's fee for service. I have to do it this way because I'm going to get reimbursed this way. So why would I ever change? Did you ever bump up against that as well, Karen? Because of that, we started going after employers and wellness because this was when the Affordable Care Act was coming in play. Brilliant. And there was going to be all these incentives for employee that employers could give to employees. And how do you design those incentives? And you know what? That kind of didn't go very far for us. And to your point on fee-for-service, where we quickly made traction, and we still do today, is working with payers on closing gaps in care. 
because that is clear revenue from CMS, getting your higher stars ratings translates to revenue. And so with the fee-for-service world, we're able to make progress, which may or may not be where we always want to focus is how do you get patients to show up for your appointments? Because that's how you get paid, right? Like we worked with Mount Sinai with their Medicaid population, high cost, high risk. So this was managed Medicaid. So this wasn't fee-for-service, but bear with me here. And we focused on getting patients to actually show up for their appointments because this is a special program where it wasn't a seven-minute appointment. It was closer to 30 or 40 minutes. And the goal was to keep the patient out of the ER. And so we brought behavioral economics into signage in the waiting room, as well as created pledge cards between the physician and the patient for them to show up for appointments. And we got five points change in a reduction in no-show rates. And so if you think about in the fee-for-service world, getting patients to show up for appointments is interesting. And so we can drive that behavior. Wow, that's exciting. And then also, Karen, we have a lot of innovators and technologists that are part of our Passionate Pioneers community. And one thing that really struck me in learning more about your work and Val Health and what you're doing to drive engagement in the industry, I mean, some of the numbers are just so black and white and powerful in regards to some of your case studies that are highlighting a 4.9x increase in portal usage, a 35% increase in digital health enrollment, and an 8.3x increase in digital health app download rates. Before I ask the questions, let me set the stage here a bit. So myself, I'm a healthcare technologist, have been for many years. And what I always say when I'm on the kind of road speaking as well is we have plenty of technology. Technology is not the issue. There's incredible innovators out there that have already built the most fancy type of technologies that we all could be using today, but it's the adoption thereof. It's getting the end user, typically the patient, right, to actually use these products. I mean, one example, Karen, is look at the wearable rage a couple of years ago, right? We had this massive bump and a huge flood of the Fitbits of the world. And then we saw six, nine, 12 months later that a massive decrease in sustained usage. So with that, Karen, can you share a bit of some of these case studies that you and the Val Health team have highlighted about these increases of usage? And then can you also talk about sustained usage as well? That is a great question. We think about one-time and ongoing behavior changes, and there are different behavioral economics tools we use for them. And to go back to what you were saying just now with the wearables and the rage, we know technology alone doesn't drive behavior change. Someone who is obese, just handing them a Fitbit, they're not just going to start walking. That wasn't the problem, right? We have to set quick wins, near-term goals. We have to design programs that use a bit of extrinsic motivation to nudge people to do what they're doing. And so when we think about one-time behavior, so you talk about the 4.9 times increase in using the portal, that was with Sutter Health Hospital System in Northern California. They wanted to get patients to use their portal because it creates more of a relationship And it's also a win-win. It's a patient satisfier and it lowers costs because people are self-helping. And so we focused on scheduling appointments online because it was an actual job to be done that the patient needed to do. And there was direct reduction in cost of manning phones. And the touch point we had was email, which is not that effective of a touch point, meaning how you reach the patient. We created A-B testing in terms of focusing on features or exclusivity, so bringing behavioral economics into the messaging. And this was done with hundreds of thousands of people. So this was a large sample size. And when we use the behavioral economics exclusivity framing with a clear call to action, but 4.9 times as many people scheduled their appointments online. And it didn't cost them anything more. They were already sending emails out. Yes, they had to hire us. 
but they got such an incredible ROI within like eight days of all the work we did because patients were scheduling. And so when we think about one-time behaviors, we oftentimes try to change the default because if you can just make the right path, the easy path to get people started, they're going to do that. So with Penn Medicine, they wanted providers to prescribe more generics over branded medicine. And they previously had was medicines listed in alphabetical order or some who knows what the order was. And overnight, they changed it so the default was generic. Physicians could still go prescribe the branded, but the default was generic. And overnight, the prescribing rate went from a range of like 30 to 60% generic to an average of 95% because it was the right path, the easy path. So when you think of one-time behaviors, if you can change that default, that's really powerful. Now for ongoing engagement, it's much harder because you actually need people to keep doing something, right? You can't just set it and forget it. And here it's how do you create quick wins? Because that gets you momentum. We're all about streaks. We don't like to miss out. If we've done three, four or five days, it's like, you know, don't miss out. I'm getting your sixth day. There's also social proof that other people are doing this. You should keep doing it. And so there's different tools we can use to get that sustained engagement. And in regards, let's flip the script a little bit too, though. Let's now talk about the clinician or the provider type of persona. Karen, you know, we have unfortunately seen so many reports coming out over the past number of years of provider burnout at its all-time high. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, with COVID-19 in front of us at this moment, this national crisis, it's only further exacerbated. How do we apply behavioral economics to that very important persona in our industry? You know, change for them is tough. We've heard, again, living in the technology world, and I agree with what I'm about to say, do not add another click to my workflow if I'm that provider, right? Don't add another thing where I have to come outside of my EHR to a complete task X, right? How do we think about or how do you move the provider side of the aisle forward in these frameworks that you guys have built at ValHealth? That is a great question. And it's a really hard question. And it's hard because there's so much inertia in the system in this is just how things are done. And if you try and just tweak it, it's not going to make a noticeable difference. And it may actually end up adding work. And I want to say something that's a little provocative here, but I think that's okay. Oh, that's what we're here for. Yeah, please do. We almost need to tear out the whole process of what physicians need to be doing and start again. If you think of in the EMR today, it's really just a filing cabinet that was put into being electronic. It's not actually using technology to give the physicians the meaningful alerts that they do. Like they probably only need alerts on the 4% of their patients that have something, but they're getting 100% alerts because that's just what the system does. And so we need to look at how can technology be just as easy as ordering on Amazon or Google reminding me that I haven't gotten a reply to an email that I sent that I wanted to know about. And so it's thinking about what is important to the physician and looking at it from the physician and patient perspective and changing the whole flow that way. And then going back to the technologist and the technology persona, Karen, do you have one or two type tidbits or kind of pieces of advice for our entrepreneurs, our startup teams out there in regards to how to think about the adoption of their platform, the adoption of their technology? Any one or two pieces of advice for them as well? I'm all about succinctness. So One is make the right path, the easy path. Think about the order in which you present anything or the number of buttons or the number of information or your registration flow. Do you really need that information or how many obstacles can you remove along the way to get people started? So making the right path, the easy path is really important. The second one would be think about the words you're using and how you're framing this. Think about if you can frame something as a loss versus a gain, that's powerful, but you have to be cautious because we don't want to come across as negative. Think about social comparisons. We are social beings. We like to do what others are doing. And so can you bring that in? And then if you do a little bit of gamification, even though I hate those words, 
Think about how you create the quick wins to get people started and get them engaged. Because if you ask too much of them up front, they're never going to take action. Got it. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Very good words of wisdom for a lot of our innovators and entrepreneurs out there. And in the beginning of the episode here, Karen, I introduced you and Val Health as the industry's chief engagement officer. So with that, who are your metaphorical colleagues if you're the industry's chief engagement officer? Who are you working with inside of these systems? Are you working with the CFOs? Are you working with the chief medical officers? Who do you all work with to really help drive these moments of change for the industry? Great question. And to be honest, it differs across the system because they're not all set up that same. So oftentimes it's population health if they're trying to get patients to do behaviors. Sometimes it's chief innovation officers who are trying to advance what they're doing or the digital transformation offices. More and more, we would like to be working with a CFO because there is about cost, there is about billing, there is about revenue cycle management that could happen. Yeah, that makes sense on all fronts there. And then, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on COVID-19. You know, one thing that we've seen through this pandemic, and I always like to say amidst great chaos presents great opportunity. And of course, we're in that right now. And the pandemic has exposed quite a few things with our industry that obviously need a ton of work. One of them, though, that I believe is a little bit of a phoenix already rising out of the ashes is telehealth. Our friends and actually a previous guest on the podcast, Ann Mon Johnson, the CEO of the American Telemedicine Association. She's very close to our community and she updates me regularly in regards to the uptick of usage of telehealth applications across our nation. It's just been explosive. One article I saw this weekend said we've advanced telehealth five years in like the first five weeks of the pandemic. Can you share a bit? And I got to imagine there's some behavioral economics laid in there in all sorts of ways. What does this mean in regards to this explosion of telehealth during and staring down this crisis that is the pandemic? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for Val Health? And what is the opportunity for all of us to learn from that? It's interesting you bring up telehealth because for many years, Val Health had been working to get telehealth adopted across the industry. We worked with some of the direct providers. We worked with payer provider systems. We worked with payers. We worked driving the consumer behavior change. And when we tackle problems, we look at, well, what are the hurdles that we need to overcome? And with telehealth, it was the physicians didn't want it. The patients were reluctant. There's technology problems. And then there was reimbursement problems. And overnight with COVID, every single hurdle was removed. And suddenly it became almost the default of this is just what we need to do. And so from a behavioral economics perspective, that is the most powerful tool we have is the default. It's been fascinating to see this adoption. And people often ask me, do I think telehealth will stay when the pandemic is over? The answer is probably not as extreme as it has been. But yes, because there's a concept called the endowment effect. So the patient is used to now being able to call up a doctor and not have to leave their home for many ailments. And they're going to want to keep that. There's no reason that you know, my elderly mother who has diabetes and multiple conditions has to get in a car to go talk to her doctor about something that the doctor doesn't need to physically touch her on. And so with COVID, it's opening up some of the weaknesses in the system, and we're having to finally be innovative to close those. Another big weakness of the system that has been exposed, and we actually talked about this with Manic Bot, one of the founders of our company for social determinants of health and discussing what that means for this pandemic. Have you guys worked on the social determinants of health within this pandemic, or were even working on it before the pandemic? And what does that also mean for industry and what should we be considering there? Yes and yes. So social determinants of health are very critical. We do a lot with Medicaid populations or duals. And oftentimes, some of our solutions and our challenges are 
well, they're not going to the doctor because they can't get childcare or they don't have transportation or they're not taking their medicine because they don't have a refrigerator for it or their asthma attack is coming up because their carpet is all dirty. And so we look at how do you help people with their underlying challenges? Because if you don't solve those, then you can't actually get to the true element of health. Because as a consumer, as a person, we don't want to take care of our health. We just want it to be taken care of, right? I literally want my cake. You'll be able to eat it too and still not gain weight. And so the more we can change the environment around someone to, again, make the right path, the easy path, how do we just take care of the transportation for them? Or better yet, send someone to their home, but send the nurse to their home for them. All of that has been coming up more and more during COVID in the, in the home health and taking care of the social determinants of health components. Well, thank you for highlighting that as well, because it is important. We're seeing it now more than ever in regards to these huge needs for many of our citizens across the nation. So thank you for highlighting that, Karen. So let's talk a little bit of future state here. I typically ask our thought leaders like yourself to really share what is it going to look like in the next three to five years with your work and where we're heading as an industry. But the world is literally changing by the day right now in the midst of this pandemic. So maybe you can share a bit, what's it even look like for you and the team and our industry in the next six, nine, and 12 months? And what are some of the things that we should be considering as thought leaders in this industry alongside you? It's a great question. And it really is changing week by week. It's fascinating. And so if you think of behavioral economics, which is driving engagement and change, when I talk to hospital system leaders, like, how do I get my patients to come back in for elective surgeries or screenings? You know, Screenings are down, what, 95%? There's a lot that can be done on the framing and safety and how to make people feel safe in this environment to come in. There's also going to be a shift to home health. We see that because it's safer for people to be at home and it's much easier. And then, as I mentioned before, with screenings down, unfortunately, in the next year or two, we're going to see more of these late stage cancers and chronic conditions going out of control because people are just not taking care of themselves now. So the more we can do as a society and a system to help people not truly have incredible setbacks in their health, despite the COVID pandemic going on around us, that's really important. Yeah, very sage advice. We're seeing it quite a bit right now in regards to the elective side, but making sure that we're taking care of these chronic issues. Just to build on that, Karen just saw recently a report about how down we are with vaccines with toddlers and babies. It's just unbelievable the numbers. That's just going to cause problems going forward too. Yeah, it's definitely things that we should all be thinking about. So as a community, let's consider how do we continue to push on exactly that? I think Karen really hit on something that I know that we all can be working on. So thank you for that, Karen. Let's also now talk a little bit about where we can find you online. Where are some touch points, online websites, social media handles, or otherwise? You can contact me directly at khorgan, H-O-R-G-A-N, at valhealth.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Karen Horgan. And then our website, www.valhealth.com, also has information. And you can sign up for our monthly insights where we'll send out some interesting tidbits. Oh, perfect. Excellent. We'll also leave all of those contact points online for Karen and her team at ValHealth over on our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. Over there, there'll be an entire topic posted around Karen's episode where you can also share some feedback ideas and discuss some of the things that we covered in today's episode. Again, over at passionatepioneers.com, our free global online community. So thank you for that, Karen. And now we are starting to wrap up and we're at one of my most favorite parts of the podcast, our fill in the blank. And if you could fill this in and then we'll say our goodbyes. I'm a passionate pioneer because? Because education and information alone aren't going to drive behavior change. And there's so much to be done to improve health and well-being. And so the more we can bring behavioral economics in is the reason I'm a passionate pioneer. 
Well, Karen, thank you for that. And thank you for spending time with us today. I know how busy you and the team are really continue to push our industry forward. But thank you for sharing your expertise, your perspective, and your passion with our community. As I know, we can continue to push our industry forward by working together. So again, thank you for being with us today, Karen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.